February 17th, 2024, and we're now just over halfway through our winter retreat period. And we've been doing a lot of study of Dhamma, a lot of readings. And this last week, uh, I started out doing a couple days, but then Ajahn Sudiro picked it up and has been, I've been appreciating listening to those, these various suttas and follow, very much following our theme of back to the basics, the basic tenets of Buddhism, the basic teachings of the Buddha. And uh, there was Ajahn Sudiro read out some suttas on, uh, one was the uh, debate with the wanderer Satchika, and then that was around, so just by way of review, that was around how does, that, the way it starts out is how does the Blessed One discipline and train his students, and that's looking at the impermanent suffering and not-self nature of the five khandhas, and then also going through uh, sensual desire, the suttas on the um, drawbacks of sensual desire, and then the last one we listened to was uh, simile of the saw, the looking into anger. So very much uh, the Buddha talking about the drawbacks of sensuality, the drawbacks of anger, and then how to look into and gain insight into the five khandhas in order to develop insight and learn to let go of these things. And I was thinking a little bit more about the simile of the saw, how it's this really, really strong image of even if someone was savagely sawing your limbs off with a two-handled saw, if you were to give rise to a mind of anger, you wouldn't be follow the, following the Buddha's teaching. And uh, that uh, very, very extreme image, but also it's, it's lifting up that the ultimate level of kindness and nonviolence reacting with, with nonviolence and uh, at the good fortune also to a couple weeks ago uh, speak on the phone with Tanajan Jayasaro and uh, he was reflecting a little bit on uh, years and years ago having seen the movie Gandhi and how, how there's this one scene where uh, they're protesting the salt tax and uh, there's uh, these um, Indian, the Indian protesters have been instructed to be completely nonviolent in the face of violence. And there's just uh, one line of them would go up to the, uh, the British soldiers who would then savagely beat them and they would just fall over and then the next line would go up and then they would fall over and then the next line would go up, but they never fought back and and that how powerful how powerful of a statement or an image that is and so there are there are examples of this having been put into practice historically and having a very very powerful result or many of us know the mass the story of master shu yun master Xuanhua's teacher who lived to be 120 and passed away in 1959, and um, many of us know the story, so I won't, won't go into it in that much detail, but that uh, he was uh, savagely 
beaten when he was, I believe, 104 years old and didn't fight back or resist in any way. And what's more, actually willed himself to live out of compassion for his attackers. And so the, the Buddha is talking about in, this, in, in these suttas that, uh, say in the simile of the Saw Sutta, that if somebody wrongs us or, or criticizes us, even, even if it's unjust, then he says to respond by, by well, com I will cultivate a mind of loving kindness, beginning with that person, spreading out to likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth quarter of the world, abundant, exalted, immeasurable. So he says to start with that person, start with that person and then spread out to everybody, spread out to all beings, although that may seem a little bit daunting, like when we got the uh, chanting request for tonight, you know, may you chant for all beings. And that might seem, that might seem daunting. Of course, we're always supposed to be keeping that in mind, but uh, just realistically, beings are, beings in the universe are numberless, limitless. And so how could we possibly spread goodwill to all beings? Maybe a little bit easier to spread goodwill to specific beings. So then the Buddha has us start with, okay, we'll spread goodwill to that specific being who wronged you, who criticized you, rather than hold on to thoughts of, they wronged me, they criticized me. That's in the, uh, we see in those Dhammapada verses, whoever holds on to thoughts that they wronged me, they criticized me, they harmed me, they hurt me, whoever holds on to thoughts like that reaches a bad destination. And whoever doesn't hold on to the thoughts, they wrong me, they hurt me, they criticized me, they beat me, they, they, uh, they abused me. Whoever doesn't hold on to thoughts like that, they reach a good destination. So these are basic tenets of Buddhism. Kindness, kindness and compassion, forgiveness, not holding on to anger. And then with the drawbacks of sensuality, Sometimes when we read these suttas, it can seem so obvious and so clear. But then when we go about our daily lives, then we just slip back into it. We just slip back into it. So we might be, be very inspired by the teachings and then we just kind of slip back into our old habits. So when we talk about training or learning, the sikha, we talk about training then our mind is always going to slip back down or default to the lowest point that our training will hold it up, that it won't go below a threshold of where we've trained ourselves to. So however much we've trained ourselves, however we've decided to call into question and, and overcome any unwholesome habits that we might have, like body, speech, or mind, and then our that's our training. So... Uh, but there'll be t a lot of times in our daily life when we just drop back down to that default level or that threshold level of where we've trained ourselves to. And that's good just to make note of. And then we can remember ourselves. I think a good translation for sati 
which is normally translated as mindfulness, could be to remember oneself. Sati has that, has that connotation or the meaning of recollection. Sati Sampajanya would be to remember oneself and then clearly know oneself. So when we find ourselves in our going about our daily lives, when we're not in the formal practice, when we're not doing our formal sitting and walking meditation, or we're not doing our chanting, then, and we're just going about uh, our daily lives, our daily interactions, then uh, when we find ourselves with that outgoing ebullience or just falling into some sort of unwholesome course of speech, then can there be that moment, can there be that moment when we actually stop and say, oh, I'm going to remember myself. I'm going to remember myself right now. And we stop and we, as Longpur Pasano likes to say, we rein it in and then we come back in. So that's the whole idea of noble silence during the winter retreat. It's all about reining it in. So if the, when we talk, when we talk, like even me talking now during this Dhamma talk, the energy is going out. Uh, there's that outward focus, but then can we bring it back in to an inward focus? That's the whole idea of noble silence. And when we're talking, so when we talk and if we, if we talk a lot, Talking a lot can be very pleasurable, but then suffering is just going to follow in its wake. Uh, when we go out a lot, then then we're expending our wholesome energy going out. And, and it, in a way, it's like we're cashing in our chips early. So we've made a little bit of money, and we just go out and spend it. We don't save any of it. It's like we, we've been working. We've genuinely been working hard in the meditation, the sitting and walking meditation, the three-hour practice sessions in the afternoon that we've been having this past week and that we'll have for one more week before we, before we change the schedule again. We're genuinely making money. We're genuinely building up those uh, kind of that uh, boon, that punya, the merit. We're genuinely building that up. But then if it just, we if we expend it prematurely, then then we don't get to actually buy something better later on. So we, how do we expend our goodness prematurely? How do we expend our merit prematurely? How do, we, how do we spend our money prematurely? So that's when we have a little bit of money and we just decide, oh, I can get some pleasure from this. Uh, this is good. And then we, we spend three, four, five, ten hours uh, you know, talking, chatting, or just, uh, or just kind of uh, going out, going out in general rather than staying in. And sometimes we need to spend a little bit of that money. Sometimes we need to have little hits of pleasure just to to feed on to keep ourselves going. That's that basic teaching on a nutriment that we went over earlier in the retreat. But then just recollecting was one of the for Sutta Zajan Sadiro read was uh, advice to Rahula, so the Buddha's biological son. And uh, this advice would have been given to him fairly early on. Uh, so he, he was probably still a, a novice at that time when he received this advice just to 
never tell a lie even for the sake of a joke, which is quite a high standard. This is anybody who would consciously tell a lie, there's no evil they will not do. And he uses the simile of this, he's used, used, used some uh, water to wash his feet and he dumps the water out after washing his feet and he says, see this, uh, see this upside down water vessel, Rahula? He says, yes, I see it. Any samana, any recluse who would consciously, knowingly deceive somebody, knowingly tell a lie, consciously tell a lie, and who is not ashamed to do so, they've turned their recluse ship upside down, just like this water vessel. And then he turns it back up and see this empty water vessel, anyone who would consciously tell a lie, their recluse ship is empty, just like this water vessel. And so uh, these, this is a very strong statement. Normally, maybe I know for myself, before coming to the monastery, telling a lie was no big deal. And it was like, okay, well, that's just what people do. That's, that's normal. And sometimes you have to lie. Sometimes uh, maybe just to protect a friend or, or whatever, or just, you know, you're expected, you're expected to lie. There was uh, one of our Anagargas here who's, uh, he was now, he's moved to another monastery, but uh, he said before he came here and became an Anagarika, he was actually uh, tried to get a job with Amazon and was actually ordered to just tell lies on his on his uh, resume or on his uh, the sheet that you're supposed to fill out. It's like, well, nobody answers truthfully to those questions. You know, how could you live your life to those kind of high standards that those questions are asking you about? So he was actually told by you know the person who would be hiring him to lie on it, and he wasn't able to do that, and. And so it was, uh, was expected to be immoral, and he, he felt he couldn't do that. So that was, uh, I said sadhu to that. That's a good thing. And sometimes also we think, uh, we might think that we need to be in this really great uh, state of mind all the time, but that's also not the case. So the mind isn't, the body isn't ideal for sure, and the mind also isn't ideal. So we study all these teachings and we might actually be kind of disgusted with where our mind is at. And that's also something we need to, we need to look at and realize. So when we come to this practice, how long have we been practicing? And we can't, although we are taking very high ideals, comparing ourselves to the Buddha as a standard, the Buddha and, and the enlightened disciples and great Acharyas like Ajahn Man or Ajahn Chah or any of our other Ajahns, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, then uh, of course we might feel like, oh, we're inadequate or the mind is inadequate. We hear about uh, them attaining maybe high stages of peace in their meditation and might feel, we might feel very inadequate something I've appreciated about Ajahn Sumedho's teachings 
is just being able to develop that skill of coming back to how things are right now. So say like in the meditation this evening and I'm thinking, okay, I have to give a Dhamma talk, but I'm not experiencing some sort of really deep state in my meditation that I can talk about or some sort of euphoric bliss that I can really uh, expound upon. Got a slight headache, feel kind of tired, and that's just the way it is. So then Lumpur Sumedho's teachings started coming up for me that, okay, this is the way it is. I don't need to be in a state of bliss. I don't need to actually be anything at all. I can just look, you know, just train myself to be okay with tiredness, slight headache, body feels a bit heavy. Just, that's just the way it is. And it's not a problem, it's, it's okay, it's fine. But if I was to be comparing myself too much, comparing myself too much with some of these teachings that, okay, you gotta cultivate these four jhanas, gotta get there or else it's not okay. But how do we do that? How do we actually do that? Is it from really uh, that goal-oriented mind and thinking about the future, that I have to achieve something in the future? Or does it come from being okay with the way things are in the moment? So that's the development of upeka, which is equanimity. And it's also said in the teachings that of all conditioned states, equanimity is the closest to Nibbana. So that shows us that equanimity is something we can cultivate at any time through that development of just being all right with the way things are, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And so where does the suffering actually come from? And the basic teaching is that it comes from clinging. So clinging to happiness, clinging to suffering. When we cling to happiness, suffering follows in its wake. Uh, just like the track follows the wheel of the ox cart. So when we, when we cling, the suffering is gonna follow right there. But how can we experience happiness? How can we experience happiness and be okay with it, not pushing away, not clinging to it? How can we experience dissatisfaction and suffering or disagreeable experiences? How can we go through disagreeable experiences and actually be okay with it? So that's, that's coming back to that sense of equanimity. So the mind might have resistance to disagreeable states. The mind might rebel or want to, or it might get frustrated or irritated or just generally stressed out. But even then we can, even when that happens, even when that happens, I say, well, they were telling me to be okay with whatever and I'm not able to be okay with it and I'm not good because of that. And so we might, uh, but we can always come back to that sense of being okay with it. No matter how far down the road of negativity we've gone, we can put the brakes on 
So that's mindfulness. That's remembering yourself in terms of negativity. So I spoke a few minutes ago about remembering yourself in terms of outgoing positive energy, outgoing pleasure type energy. And now, and you can also remember yourself, we can remember ourselves with the negative energy when we're sitting in meditation, we're getting negative towards ourselves or negative towards others. We can remember ourselves. And sati is like putting the brakes on so that uh, we just we just come back to the way it is in the present. Not necessarily achieving great things or doing anything special, but just looking at the way it is in the present. So that's that's really the basic practice. And then there's these very basic insights, the uh, sabe, sankara, anicca, all conditions are impermanent. Uh, sabe, dhamma, anatta, all things are not self. That, that's a, that the reason it's not sabe, sankara, anatta is uh, dhamma includes the unconditioned as well. So all things, all, 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 I guess you could translate dhammas as things. All things are not self. Uh, all conditions are impermanent. All things are not self. Uh, all conditions are impermanent is if that is seen with proper wisdom, then the clinging can't arise. The clinging can't arise if that's seen, if that insight is truly seen. If, if you really, if uh, any of us really see that sabe sankara anicca, the clinging can't abide with that. And why is that? And that's because clinging comes from that delusion of it, things are something might last. This clinging is to get something to last. So uh, this, uh, this experience, I want it to last. So that's the, the clinging. This experience is disagreeable. I want it to end. That's the clinging. So, but if we know Sabe Sankara Anicca, then where we previously thought, I don't want this to end, I want this to last. Where we previously thought that, we know it's not gonna last whether we wish it to last or not. We know it's not going to last. Or if we think this disagreeable experience, I want it to be over. But if we know Sabe Sankara Anicca, we know it's gonna be over whether we wish it to be or not. So it's the clinging that causes the suffering over it. So with sabe, sankara, anicca, then anything, whether pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, then whether we wish it to change or not, whether we wish it to become otherwise or not, it's going to become otherwise. 
it's going to become otherwise. And so when that's seen, then the clinging would become nonsense. The clinging to it would become nonsense because the clinging is what causes the stress and the suffering. So it doesn't mean we don't look after things or protect what's good. We have to protect what's good. Doesn't mean we don't look after our families or look after the monastery or look after each other. Well, you know, it's all impermanent, so you know, I might as well just stand aside and watch while that other person attacks that other person. It, that's not what it means. Well, all things are impermanent, so you know, I'm going to die anyway, so I'm not going to look after this illness. It doesn't mean that. So we have our, our duty and we look after things, but we do it with the knowledge of Sabe, Sankara, Anicca. We do it with the knowledge of change. So we look after that which is wholesome, we protect that which is wholesome, but with that knowledge of impermanence, and we look and we uh, look to abandon that which is unwholesome, but with the knowledge of impermanence as well. And then sabe dhamma anatta. So that's all things are not self. That's also pointing towards the clinging. The same. That's the same result is that the clinging would seem to be nonsense with that type of an insight. So the not-self is pointing to me and mine. So clinging to things as me and mine would become nonsensical in the face of that insight. So halfway through, a little over halfway through winter retreat, uh, Usually at the beginning of winter retreat, this image comes to mind of setting sail, you know, tossing the, untying the ropes from the ship, tossing them onto the dock and setting and uh, floating out into the ocean. So a little over halfway through the winter retreat, we could think that we're just in the middle of the ocean at this point. We're in the middle of the ocean and as we're sailing, then uh, I see some uh, other friends have shown up tonight in the and uh, kind of uh, it's a it's like other boats have, have come and uh, also who have who have also set sail and now we've met up and we have a bit of a fleet now and uh, also something uh, a phenomenon that tends to occur around the midpoint of the winter retreats seen this over and over again is that we're going to start looking towards the end of the retreat so in the, in the beginning of the retreat, we weren't looking towards the end of the retreat. We were looking at, let's get into that three weeks of practice. So you know, I'm hoping for great things and maybe I'll experience some jhanas and some bliss. And, and uh, if I don't get the jhana, I better get the jhanas because that's, that's what the text says. And so, uh, and then during that three weeks, I, ah, you know, whatever's happening there is, uh, you know, we're kind of, and then time goes on and now, oh, what are we doing after the retreat? But actually there's a, big, there's a big gap between now and the end of the retreat. So there's still, uh, I guess if we're counting days, some of us might be crossing those days off the calendar. And uh, so if we're counting days, then we've got about till, till March 31st, we've got, uh, 
43 days left uh, to cultivate, to practice. So 43 days uh, on the ocean left, and uh, that's, that's a good chunk of time. And uh, just to make really good use of it, not to look forward too much, but uh, I guess uh, coming back, coming back just to right here, right now. Another phenomenon that can happen, and I know this has happened for me many times during the winter retreat about halfway, is getting uh, sick of listening to Dhamma teachings. And um, that, can, that can happen as well. So it's like, oh, enough, enough, okay, fine. I get it, I get it. And uh, not wanting to listen to many more teachings. But that's why we have our two-week retreats for the monastics and the one-week retreats for the lay people. So we get to get a bit of a break from that. But then it's not always great having a break from that because then we just have to listen to our own mind more, which is, uh, that's, that's just another type of, ah, oh, enough, enough. Uh, remembering when uh, the concrete workers were here for uh, doing, the, doing the sidewalks for this reception hall building and... Uh, it's kind of kind of a group of rough characters, and uh, they uh, we had told them that uh, um, yeah we know you guys normally like to listen to music while you're working, uh, but uh, you can't do that here. And one of them said, "You mean I gotta listen to my own crazy ass mind?" <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's what it's designed to do. It's to make us make us look at our. But he had an, he had that insight right away. That okay, he saw uh, he saw what's happening. <laughs> but it is a good opportunity. It is a good opportunity. The the practice tradition because this is a practice tradition. It comes from Lumpur Cha in, in Thailand, and of course in the West, things are a little bit softer. Uh, we're not just eating. Um, the one meal a day is more optional. We have breakfast here in this monastery. That seems to be a phenomenon in, in the Western monasteries. And, and uh, so it's not quite as strict in Th as in Thailand or nearly as strict as, say, when, when Ajahn Shah was alive. We have computers and cell phones. And, and uh, of course, in the time of Ajahn Shah, cell phones didn't exist yet. And, Phones were not very good either, and uh, certainly computers weren't around. So it was a different era back then. And, and uh, during this winter retreat, I myself have tried to really scale back the use of the phone and the computer just to try to focus more inwardly. And after about a month of that, I, I did need to dust off the computer to do some correspondence for for some things happening, visits of Kruba Ajans happening this year, uh, but which is why I, I knew not to make a firm determination. I made a more like an aspiration, but not a firm aditana to not pick those things up at all. But I, I did, uh, was able to pat myself on the back for doing it for about four weeks. 
and uh, once the correspondence was minimally done, then able to set it back down again. That uh, found that uh, without the without the tech, um, did have time to look through and organize some boxes of things. And uh, one of the things I found was uh, maybe it was almost the comma from not using tech was this uh, this clock which looks really nice, but it's over 50 years old and it doesn't take batteries. It's a wind-up only clock and it works very well. It was, it belonged to Metica's grandfather and uh, it even tells the date on it. So it's, it says 17 on it right now, or February 17th. And uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty accurate. Just have to wind it up every few days. Don't ever have to replace batteries in it. And, um, kind of appreciating craftsmanship from the past in, in something like this, which uh, is quite nice. So just coming back to some of these, these basic teachings and how do we actually practice with them? How do we use them to look at our own experience? And again, not trying to create some sort of ideal experience. One of the drawbacks of reading all these teachings about the the jhanas and the graduated path and, and listening to things that are very inspiring is that we might try to actually create these things in our mind. That's one of the pitfalls of, of practice is when we, we think, oh, we might read this teaching of Lumpur Cha talking about these very profound experiences of insight that he had where the whole world is dissolving into minute particles or Longda Mahabua relating how the mind flipped over and the whole world turned upside down when he looked into the core of ignorance or that final reference point of atta, of self, you know, broke apart. We might read teachings like that or hear teachings like that and actually try to create them. However, those things can't be created. It really, uh, I really, uh, for myself, I really believe that it really does come back to those basic things that Lumpur Sumedho is pointing towards, just how are things right now? Slight headache, body, body feels heavy, slightly tired, developing a sense of coming back to the present. This is the way it is. And the, mic, the mind can become bright within that. So it's not from creating a conceptual experience based on hearing these teachings. That's, that's not it. That's not what, what it's pointing to. But it's pointing it back to ourselves. I uh, really liked this one, uh, this one teaching that I read of Longta Mahabua saying, relating his meeting with Ajahn Man and uh, him saying that it was like he had so much trust in Ajahn Mun because everything Ajahn Mun said, it wasn't like, well, it's maybe like that or it's kind of like this. And it was more just right here, right here, right here, right now, right now, right now. Just coming back to this very basic teaching of just look at the experience, look at your own experience. How are things? How are things now? And within that, we can start to see these truths, of the Buddha's teachings, aging, sickness, death. We look into these things. 
contemplating these basic things, mindfulness of the body. How is the body? Does the body feel heavy? Or the those five meditation objects, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin. Oh, last time I went to the dentist, I was told I had a very small cavity forming in a tooth, but it wasn't big enough to fill in yet. So just, I've been contemplating teeth a lot, chewing, brushing, just looking after teeth. Am I satisfied with my teeth? Am I not satisfied with my teeth? My teeth aren't perfectly straight. I want to have perfectly straight teeth like the Buddha, but my teeth aren't ideal. My teeth aren't perfectly straight. And then I recollected, I've suffered a lot over this in the past. I've suffered a lot over my teeth, but they're just teeth. <laughs> they're they're just they're the uh, something very ordinary. They're part of our skeleton. They're the visible part of our skeleton, and they degrade over time. So when I was told I had this cavity. I said, so what you're telling me is that my teeth are just following the normal uh, normal timeline of degradation. And Dr. Morasso, he said, yes, yes, that's what I'm telling you. That's This is the normal degrading of the teeth. It's like no matter how much I brush, floss, look after the teeth, using the, my mom offered a water flosser, using a water flosser, you know, even then they still they still degrade. And I can kind of feel where the cavity is. I can kind of uh, try to keep it as clean as possible. But these things just, they just degrade. We, we look after them. But if I cling to my teeth, if I cling to my teeth, then I'm going to suffer over them, just like I have so much in the past. And it's not something I can change. This isn't something I can change. It's like, well, you could go and get braces and get straight teeth, and you could maybe uh, make sure to get all the cavities filled in on time. And but if I, it just comes back to if I cling to my teeth, I'm going to suffer. Doesn't mean, okay, I'm not going to cling to my teeth. I'm never going to brush my teeth. I'm never going to floss. That's not. That's another type of clinging, actually. Uh, that's not non-clinging. So we just, it's that balance of just looking after things, just doing what needs to be done. Or the breath. I want the breath to be a certain way. Or the body itself just as a whole, it's never completely still. So we want the mind to be still, but the body is never still. So even if the mind starts to calm down a little bit, the heart is still beating, the blood is still flowing, the body just by its very nature, it's not still, it's, it's breathing, it's, the blood is flowing, there's various movements and twitches, and the body itself never really gets it's, it's in and of itself, by its very nature, it's not peaceful. It's not peaceful. But the mind can become peaceful. So the, the body is a sankara, so sabe sankara anicca. And the body is not self, sabe dhamma anatta. 
So uh, when we see with wisdom those things, we, don't, we won't expect the body to just become absolutely still. We won't expect the heart to stop beating, the blood to stop flowing. That's a dead body. That would be a corpse. So we don't need to expect that. Yes, we can keep the body as still as possible in meditation. And, but the body itself is not going to become perfectly still. But if the mind knows that, our, our mind can become still. Our mind can be totally okay with that. Reminds me of a teaching of Ajahn Kao, one of the senior disciples of Ajahn Man. He said he reached a certain point in his practice where just the body, whether, whether a bodily sensation was pleasant or unpleasant, he started perceiving them all as unpleasant just because whether it was pleasant or unpleasant, if it was clung to, it was suffering. So pleasantness when clung to is suffering. Unpleasantness when clung to is suffering. Clinging is the cause of the suffering. So none of these things are worth clinging to. So he started to see that all bodily conditions, even pleasure, was seen as painful. And when I read that teaching of Ajahn Kao, it made me think of this Dhammapada verse that uh, formerly with with insight or the true dhamma is seen then formally uh, what i consider to be delight has now become non-delight so no longer delighting in the things that we used to delight in i.e clinging to them and the mind the heart becomes cool cool refreshed cool and refreshed and peaceful and we might even feel like what a relief so light incredible lightness and that sense of relief, refreshment, coolness, spaciousness. And then it's implicit in that also is the letting go of the sensuality and the anger. These are all just different angles to come at the Dhamma from, these, these basic tenets, greed, hatred, delusion, the three poisons. So, but then seeing that sabe sankara anicca, sabe dhamma anatta, if we can take that as our contemplation, then it's going to be easy to be kind. It's going to be easy to let go of anger. It's going to be easy to have renunciation, easy to let go of sensuality. Just because we won't have to force it, that's the natural result of not clinging. Easy to have metta, easy to have karuna, easy to be forgiving not going to have to force ourselves to do those things or make it be contrived in any way because there's been that insight into sabe sankara anicca sabe du dhamma anatta so that's uh that's probably enough for uh the time for this evening i think i'll uh wish everybody well and I'll leave it at that